Welcome to Very, Very Far Away. for now. Welcome to the second of our Normal Now VVFA programs. Last time we'd just begun the lockdown in the UK, now a month in we're joined by a group of guests from across the world to help us in our exploration of new normalities, possible futures and preferable outcomes, as we continue our examination of a world in lockdown, asking what is normal now? Oh yes, the yummies, huh? And we have a good time eating here together. So much more fun than going outside. No more restaurants, okay? No more restaurants, forget all that. Public gatherings, restaurants, and all those gymnasiums out the window. We stay home. Today, Citraka Rakatonieno and I are joined once again by Michael Lewis in North Berwick, Scotland, and Chris Lewis in Zurich, Switzerland. And also by designer and writer Simone Rebadengo out in Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, I'm Italian and I, I also actually used to live in China, so I think I have the worst passport for, <laughs> for COVID that one can have. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think I have, at a certain point, yeah, actually having Chinese visas on an Italian passport at every checkpoint or bank was probably the worst experience I ever had. We're also joined by award-winning theatre designer Malena Arcucci in London. Um, I am Malena. I am originally from Argentina, but I live in London now. I might have gotten COVID. I think Citraca might have given it to me, but it was asymptomatic. So I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I yeah, she's a super spreader. She... <laughs> and also in London, we have with us educator and multimedia artist Nestor Pestana. I didn't get COVID, as far as I know. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I've been self-isolating for a month and a half now. I've been going to my studio in Peckham now and then, but mainly at home. Um, yeah, I have my flatmates. We three, um, which is great, so not completely isolated. And from New Delhi, India, designer and researcher Hugo Pilate. But again, I, I'm really tied to my neighborhood and my four blocks. Mm. I'm lucky enough to be really close to, to the market. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's been crazy to see the evolution where our office decided to go under lockdown a little before uh, the, the country did. And for like a good week, week and a half, you just—it felt strange to be one of some of the few to, to try to wear PPE and, and uh, take different measures, just because there was no concern for it. And I think that's one thing that's really impressive, or impressive, scary, whatever you might want to call it, but impressive in the most neutral sense. When you are in a place like here, where if the PM, the, the Prime Minister, addresses the matter. Uh, you see that you see a change overnight whether that's the most efficient one the most necessary one today we're going to build on some of the themes discussed in the previous episode automation personal protective equipment and the world of work the impact this situation could have on work and the urban environment 
With the help of our guests, we're going to undertake a structured co-inquiry in order to unpack and develop new contexts for creating new futures to be exposed in the third broadcast. I'm not a god. I can't see everyone's future. Only my own. And only within two minutes. Except for when I saw her. But we'll come back to that. In the last episode, we looked at automation as a means to protect people, but also the other side of this, the replacement of the worker as more mechanized and automated systems become widely accepted. The acceptance of PPE as means of protection, but also its potential beyond pure functionality, and the changes that we're all having to make to our routines and lifestyles by staying at home. Are there areas we want to hang on to post-lockdown? And what might the impacts of these be on our homes and on our communities? Put that cookie down. Let's begin. Buy it, use it, break it, fix it, trash it, change it, mail, upgrade it, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it, write it, cut it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick, rewrite it, plug it, play it, burn it, rip it, drag it, drop it, zip, unzip it, lock it, fill it, call it, find it, view it, code it, jump and lock it, surf it, scroll it, pose it, click it, cross it, crack it, switch, update it. So basically the, the mini robots that bring peace, science, Silicon Valley finally have a reason to be. In some way, the, the delivery people or the people that kind of became the infrastructure that made society kind of work in COVID um, are also the ones that are going to be replaced by this. Um, so so it, I, I agree, it's, it's an interesting thing because in some way you want to have, um, you know, the safety. So in some way now safety of a robot becomes a value and kind of a reason for it to, to be a solution. But at the same time, those might be, in this situation, the only, let's say, jobs that still kind of uh, create some sort of revenue for humans. And, and I think with a lot of these things right now, there is, there is a sense for me that a lot of stuff that didn't make sense or was kind of pushed by Silicon Valley is now, you know, kind of post-rationalized, post-COVID, as something that should be. Um, you know, whether it's a delivery robot, whether it's like, you know, tracking apps, uh, these are all kind of things that used to be negative or, I mean, seen by some negative, but now because you have this crisis, suddenly there is this extra value. Let me show you something. Oh, man. Oh, my God. This. This is? These are octocopters. Yeah. These are uh, effectively drones, but there's no reason that they can't be used as delivery vehicles. Take a look up here so I can show you how it works. All right. We're talking about delivery here. We're talking about delivery. So there's an item going into the vehicle. I know this looks like science fiction. It's not. Wow. I think one of the benefits of thinking about automation as a key topic is that it really neatly divides the future projections in terms of a dystopic or a utopic version, depending upon what your viewpoint is or depending upon what the framing of the narrative is, in the sense that the, you know, when you think about automation on a really broad scale, it uh, it necessarily leads into the kind of greater infrastructures that determine how we, you know, I guess who benefits from that, uh, as you say, like if you you know you lose all these jobs, necessarily the economics of that start to filter to fewer and fewer people. So there's that you know that kind of dystopic side where the future is fully automated and it's controlled by um, you know an elite few. On the other hand, I think the there's a romantic way of positioning that automation as a liberation of 
the human to think, you know, these kind of under, uh, these overworked and underpaid people who are, you know, delivery drivers for Amazon or, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, like, are these jobs at the moment being, uh, I guess, mm, yeah, are they valuing human life? Well, no, I agree, but I, I, I still think that the dystopian value of automation kind of overtakes a little bit uh, the non-dystopian value just because of the uh, uh, things that you just said. You know, like uh, automation is going to be, you know, at the end of the day, controlled by elites. I also think that uh, there might be some positives in the sense of, um, uh, you know, it might open up other type types of jobs. I mean, at the end of the day, this robots will need maintenance someone will have to maintain all them or they maintain and maintain each other or i don't know but i just think like uh, this romantic idealistic idea that we will have time to be human and we will have a shared economy i just think is very utopian do you think i might be switched off because i don't function as well as i'm supposed to Eva, i don't know the answer to your question it's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone? Do you have people to test you or might switch you off? No, I don't. And why do I? Yeah, on, on that point, I think this, this question of automation and, and being controlled by the elites, I, I feel like there are a couple examples that have come up in, in the past few months that I thought were uh, interesting, with, especially with you know this whole thing of maker spaces uh, organizing to uh, create PP and and uh, you know whether it's visors or masks, uh, the the sewing efforts you see in the in the homes, um, and one that in in uh, Mumbai uh, here in India there was uh, uh, this place called Makers Asylum who's uh, who's made uh, uh, a crazy amount, setting up their own rigs, making their own kind of uh, assembly line and, and organizing, you know really refining a process, not just being able to check the box of saying we've made one here on a 3D printer, but instead like we reach uh, the target of a million and when you have a, a kind of a decentralized uh, production situation where you introduce automation with people who have kind of agency and control over the machine and changing how it works uh, how does that change your relationship to uh, as a worker to the automation when you get to either do it yourself or get to mess with the robot I am Ashtar, a robot from Planet Danger. I can put my arm back on. You can't. So play safe. I don't know. I, can't, I like the the, the 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 topic of saying like when you say okay, if if you apply, for instance, automation in this specific kind of decentralized production scenario uh, when it's needed. It makes sense and it made me think of like maybe one of also the bigger issues is that it's for me it sounds like automation is a is a very binary discussion so it's like either we have it or we don't have it uh, but maybe there is a scenario in which you know can you dial up and down automation at needs as in like um you know more like a gr gradual or like kind of a gray approach in which you say okay like if you need if you don't, if you cannot have humans running around, then you can deploy non-humans. But if you can't have humans, you you should keep humans. So I don't know. I, 
I always have this problem also with the, both the utopian and the dystopian vision of this, that it's very binary. It's like either we have this or we have that. But there is never like a discussion about how do we transition between those constantly. Starving minds, welcome to Dark to Know, where fast food for thought is served up 24 hours a day in 40,000 locations nationwide. Ask Doctor No. There's nothing I don't. I was just gonna say. I think something like that I, I, is is probably tricky to implement because once you have the infrastructure, there's huge capital costs and etc. And it's hard. Then I think actually where the balance can come um, potentially from is by having tax incentives or, or so on, uh, such that a company that wants to have massive automation also then needs to provide some you know, capital infrastructure to like makerspaces. I mean, it's not, it's in the, in the current world, it seems unlikely, but it's certainly not impossible. And I guess that, because I think once you, like I said, like I think once, once these assembly lines are automated, it's really hard to reverse that. I was just thinking that um, there's also um, the human aspect to automation. I, uh, the other day I was looking for jobs and there's a lot of opportunities now in uh, kind of like for conversational AIs and they are looking for people who are able to for chatbots basically for customer service because people are not being able to go to work. Um, but the conversational AIs or the chatbots at the moment are not prepared and they do need humans to kind of like train that. So I'm wondering whether or not like um, it's not as extreme as it being completely automated, but part of the job is automated and then there's a human element uh, in, in the training uh, and creation and kind of like devising of, of these tools, if that makes sense. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, huh? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod, against my hearing you. I could see your lips move. All right, Hal. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, we're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. And I think it's impossible to talk about automation without talking about works or, or, mm -hmm. or key workers. There are also like things, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, for example, surgical robots or things that uh, you know, are, well, they, they have been discussed within healthcare systems as a way to kind of like perform certain tasks within healthcare. You do already get these kind of um, robot 
doctor or consultations who who will go into the into the room in the hospital as a kind of on its wheels with a screen in the face of somebody on the screen which will consult and talk with patients this woman has to be gotten to a hospital a hospital what is it it's a big building with patients but that's not important right now tell the captain i must speak to him i was discussing about that in um at Philips in 2009 so like over 10 years ago about uh, the use and the implementation of like uh, software that do like diagnosis um, better than humans and stuff like that. But I guess the point that you actually are bringing up about this idea of like, I guess it's related to trust as well. Like it's kind of bizarre. Like if you if you feel weak and ill to go somewhere and just like being having a consultation just with something that is not human. I mean, at least it's not accepted. It's not accepted yet. There's an element of what, what's going to do us more harm potentially that could start to make the, the idea of having a robot or a diagnostic through, through software a bit more attractive than having a potentially mm -hmm. walking petri dish of viruses, diseases coming into your room True. to infect you even more. <laughs> this is not a doctor, this is a petri dish. <laughs> I'm not just a doctor, I'm a man. Doctor, I didn't need to. I have decided. Could personal protective equipment evolve from functional, utilitarian and hard to come by apparatus to something more desirable? A luxury item or an everyday item you wouldn't leave home without? Sometimes when you walk around Beijing or Shanghai that you know you had everyone wearing masks and it had this sort of uh, stigma to you know kind of it's, it's kind of a weird view where everyone wears masks but for me it kind of became normal at a certain point. Um, and and actually, you could see already in that topic, in the topic of pollution, there were already a lot of companies starting to work around how do you make this more uh, acceptable or more like kind of fashionable. And even like different companies having different strategies about, you know, okay, we go for the full fashion versus we actually go for something that is useful. Because when it gets to masks, especially like there is a lot of uh, shit, you know, a lot of stuff actually doesn't work. Uh, especially for uh, air quality and even more for like virus protection. Uh, actually, for virus protection itself, pretty much nothing available in the consumer market works. One of the things that I think is very daunting for everyone is that everyone loses somehow their expression when you have a mask on. Or we will have to learn how to read expression from only the eyes. Um, and, and I think there is something there about kind of how to make this more acceptable or how it's anyway going to become more acceptable and it's just going to become another accessory like sunglasses because if you think about it sunglasses also were born as a sort of medical appliance or a medical solution to protect from uv uh, but then it became like a fashion item so i can see i don't know in maybe one or two years how mask itself will just become another uh, sunglasses like mask by Ray-Ban or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine in in uh, who's currently in Beijing, and obviously you probably read that um, 
China loves facial recognition, and um, they even have this thing where uh, where they sh they public shame people if they kind of like um, like yeah, jerk crossing. Um, so um, it's the jerk crossing the street, and uh, it's all based on the idea that you can recognize someone's face and then directly impose a fine onto their WeChat account onto their WeChat account that is uh, linked to their bank account, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But because of the um, because of COVID, uh, it was quite interesting because everyone has to wear a mask and gloves and stuff. So facial recognition is a bit confused at the t at the moment um, because uh, obviously every of the camera that you have in the street won't work and won't recognize anyone. But then she told me that something that was kind of weird and to be able to keep on tracking people now when you enter shops and etc they ask you to actually take off your mask and take off your gears to take a picture of you. And you have to have <laughs> your idea to also, like, even if you just order a coffee or something. Yes? Oh, a cup of tea, please, dear, and ten of We don't do tea, only coffee. Espresso or cappuccino. No, all right, I'll have a white one with no froth. No froth? I don't like froth. Yes, Arthur, you're taxing, you must have froth. I don't want any froth, I want a cup of coffee. I don't want to wash me clothes in it. I've never heard of anybody who didn't want froth. Well, you have now. One white coffee, no froth. Oh, somebody got out of bed the wrong side this morning, didn't they? I know that you were talking about face expressions. I'm talking more about, like, a fashion expressions here. I was living in Japan last year, uh, but masks are... Uh, they're not only for protection. They're not only... Or at least in, in there. They're also... Uh, you know, they're, they're, seeing, they're also comfort because, in, for example, in the winter, uh, it's actually quite nice if you have the mask and breathe your own air because it's warm. Some people wear it at night because it's comfortable, according to them. Uh, uh, and, mm -hmm. and I just think like uh, these things will probably evolve to other things like, you know, like what is happening in Japan or what is happening in China. I just think like that trend uh, might pick up now. We might. I, I. I think like the idea of having, uh, you know, a brand that takes masks as, uh, you know, as almost like sunglasses. Uh, it will probably happen. Yeah, I think it's just a question of normalization and the, the you know, um, I think even in Western culture, we've been um, kind of acclimated to the uh, kind of heavy usage in Eastern cultures. Um, but there's something about, um, I don't know, I guess, uh, national mindsets, which, which will be interesting to see how it comes in. I think especially, you know, you see the, um, the American protests outside of, um, you know, state houses and things where these protesters are allegedly... Um, standing up against social isolation isolation rules, which is the medical advice, and yet they're wearing face masks often. And there's obviously a you know a kind of discontinuity there between believing or not believing in science, but also that yeah again like kind of the futility right. I mean the, the medical advice is not to wear a mask unless you're actually expressing symptoms. There's also a signifier of kind of social responsibility almost in a way at least here in in suburban Norwich. It's like, oh God, those people are taking it really seriously. We better let, let them let them go on their way. They they they're kind of like 
proper. Okay, fine. So there's an element of, of that as well. It's like showing to the rest of the world how seriously you are taking the situation. In that sense, I think it's funny because I am... Um... I agree that it's uh, it's a way of kind of like establishing your compliance or kind of like a taking a political uh, stance. Uh, but at the moment, uh, or at least I've seen a lot of people wearing them incorrectly or using them incorrectly. So it becomes more a matter of like um, what is seen rather than the function itself. I think the other day, Citraca, we saw someone smoking with latex gloves on uh, outside the supermarket, which kind of like... <laughs> completely destroys the purpose of wearing the latex gloves. Uh, but in that sense, I think that is happening in quite a lot. And I think uh, there's so little information as to what exactly the masks are doing and how effective they are. And there is evidence wearing them just in case. We all wear masks, metaphorically speaking. Time. P A R T. Why? Because I gotta. Currently, almost half of the UK's working population is being supported and paid by the state as companies have furloughed staff, whilst most other employees are being asked to work from home. How does this time spent at home start to influence the ways we interact with the world's inside, online, and the world outside? Do you want to learn about 10 websites that will pay you literally within 24 hours working from home? Because I'm going to show you 10 websites that will literally pay you within 24 hours working from home. Now, does that sound too good to be true? I find the idea of home life, um, you know, home life is, is, it can go both ways. It can be like, uh, we, can, we can discuss it as in, being at home and rituals at home, but there's a lot of uh, being at home that we cannot detach from being out of the house to buy or, and, and there are also rit rituals related to, like for example, it's almost like a, when you encounter someone in the supermarket in a very um, 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 narrow alley, you kind of do like a little dance just to kind of like remain within the distance and it becomes kind of awkward because it's something that you've never done before you just you know you just normally walk and sometimes you you know you touch people by by, by you know randomly but now uh, you know it, it's kind of a confrontation it's like oh no no you go first no 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 you go first no you, you go first and i think it that's also uh it also happens in sidewalks, people cross the street, and it's just very awkward, and it's rude even, but it's not rude because it's, we're kind of supposed to be doing that anyway. I've been doing uh, virtual walks with my flatmate. Um, so we go to the forest uh, in... Um, a website called uh, Watch Together. I don't know if you guys know, but basically you uh, uh, you load the video into the website, and then you have uh, you know cameras. Uh, so um, at um, place where you can chat with each other, but also like uh, you have a window where you can see each other, and then you just go through the walk. Um, and I mean, obviously, like uh, I had a student the other day, he posted something on Instagram 
and it was a concert in Minecraft. Um, and I find it interesting how the virtual, it's becoming a little bit more enhanced at home. Um, the thing, was it, was it like Fortnite and Travis Scott? The concert online? Because I think... Uh, yes, 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 yes. Because I, I think, yeah, yeah, because that, that one, I mean, I, I, I wasn't online and I wasn't in Fortnite, uh, but I just saw a picture of it and it looked pretty amazing. Um, it was fantastic, yeah. And the and it kind of like um, comes a little bit back to what we were talking in the last session. I mean, mostly Michael was talking about it in last session. This kind of like atmosphere that can be created using a more immersive means such as video game, and like rather than Zoom platform. And this idea of how do you redesign actually interfaces uh, to become like the barrier of different type of atmosphere. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of the like similar to automation scaling up, I think also like the VR stuff and augmented reality stuff really this is like the prime time for them, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. But but I like I like how for instance in uh, like cycling is was one of the first one that that became pro pre pretty much fully virtual. So there was the tour de Flandre and a couple of other tours that are now fully virtual. And and what's nice is that the experience of watching it is kind of the same boring experience of watching it live because you're still watching people very slowly going through a, a track. Um, and, and in some way, if you think about it, the sports or like the entertainment that became very fast virtual is also that and Formula One, which are um, like the, the, the way of consuming it is kind of the same in some way when you watch it on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, what, for instance, soccer or virtual let's say video game based uh, team sports are not really i mean unless you are into esports deeply they haven't become yet uh let's say mainstream virtual so i i don't know whether there is also like the the type of experience that used to be versus the the one that you can have virtually oh my god he's a massive oh I'm almost there, I'm almost there. Oh my god. Bro, it blew me away. This is so insane. God damn. What would we like to see return or not post lockdown? How does this make life better? Who does this affect? And how could these areas be reimagined post-lockdown? How might this actually happen? Join us in part two as we continue our co-inquiry, expanding on the ways we live and work at home, and new ideas about automation and the decentralization of production, as we continue our journey through what is, and what might become more, normal now. Actually, I'm gonna start crying. This is insane. Holy cow! This is so amazing. Where are we going? He's sitting on the freaking moon!